when you ask me the question, what's the role of simulation um, within an intensive care unit? I think the role is, it's difficult to define because the truth is, it's as wide as your imagination. It's understanding the modality and, and how to apply it to achieve different goals. I think that when people start the process, it's seen as an educational tool used to educate mostly postgraduate students. And so it's seen as something that a unit does that is in service of its educational goals and objectives of, I guess, that our postgraduate colleagues. And I think very soon after that, as one expands your experience or knowledge of what the simulation can do, and usually at a point when it's starting to be seen as a tool to perform deliberate team practice, then suddenly people, I find, wake up to future possibilities. And so I guess what I'm alluding to is the fact that I think it's often seen as an educational tool and, and a tool for educating an individual, for educating teams for education within the organization. What organizations often struggle with is the distribution of learning. So classically, emails are said, we've changed the protocol. That doesn't change practice. And so actually, as a tool to roll out or management of change of practice within that organization. And then I guess where my interest lies is how that then from that stem or flows into establishing, if you like, if we imagine an intensive care unit as an organization within an organization, often because of the size of these units, if you look at staffing figures within an intensive care unit, they're often some of the largest, apart from theaters, some of the largest group of people. So often several hundreds of staff, when you look at the multi-professional group within that uh, unit. And so to educate all of those individuals in a multi-professional fashion is, is actually quite a huge task and also to change management. And I think once you understand the modality, it then becomes a tool within the unit to proactively evaluate systems, to proactively sort of change patient care pathways or to look at it in a simulated fashion. And, and what fascinates me is that often people work in environments and for a long period of time, they believe there's a better way to do this, but somehow something prevents them from getting that to, to the fore. And it's not until you place them in an interprofessional environment where they take part in the simulation, you sit them down, and as a multi-professional group, you ask them to solve the problem, that they come up with solutions that then just get implemented. For that to be successful, though, we need to move away from this idea that simulation is only a modality for training people in the postgraduate sphere or, you know, whatever their professional group is, but understanding that it's part of our lifelong learning journey and how we use that tool to create events where we can learn together. And I truly believe that we can create the same kind of learning if we had the time following clinical events to sit down and debrief it in the same fashion that we do simulation events. But the truth is, in practice, that's not feasible or possible. And so I guess what simulation does, it creates that sort of space, if you like, for a multi-professional team to take time to reflect and learn with each other from each other. Another thing that's come up is the importance of buy-in from everybody involved. How can that be achieved and what can you use to persuade people that they should be involved? Particularly, I'm thinking non-clinical people or managers and the bean counters that, that shell out the money. 
I think there's several things. One is, I think as educationalists, and I, uh, I count myself as part of this, you know, falling into this trap for a long period of time, because our focus is education. When we speak to uh, individuals who sit within the management corridor, we espouse the gold as, you know, because we, be we think that they view education with the same importance as we do. Because the truth is, every single trust that I know of has education as one of its pillars of the, of the organization. And the difficulty is that the importance that's given to it is not quite the same in every organization. However, part of the problem is because we silo education, and what I mean by that is when you look at organizations, the way that it's set up, clinical governance, you know, patient safety, quality improvement, all of those kind of things are seen as separate entities. And then education sits on the other side. And simulation within education sometimes silent. And so the problem is that unless you understand the interplay between the governance structures within the hospital and education, because the truth is, as a patient safety department, you can come up with the most fantastic strategies of improving patient safety. But if you don't have the ability to implement that through educating the staff and changing practice, then it's never going to improve patient outcome. And so actually, I think for me, some of the biggest successes have been un understanding the link between education and these other uh, goals within the organization and actually showing the organization how your simulation endeavors might improve patient outcomes. And by the way, when you scale that back and you look at what underpins that, it still holds true. Some of the goals still will be within your educational sphere. But what we don't do very well in education, because the way we measure success is by the number of events delivered, by um, whether the people like the coffee, the tea, the biscuits, um, whether they thought the training was good, you know, lovely Likert scales, but actually we, we fail to reimagine and, and ask ourselves, if this education is successful, what is the change in practice that I will see and what impact will that have on the patient? And when I start answering those questions, then I can have conversations with a management corridor. And so one of the papers that I always refer people to is a paper that was written by Elaine Cohen published in Simulation in Healthcare in 2010, which looked at the cost savings related to uh, central line infections, if you like, and looked at a simulation educational intervention, which sat closer to the skills element of, of how simulation was delivered. But nonetheless, it was a simulated event where people were taught practice around aseptic non-touch techniques. And what they were able to show is that by rolling that out, they saved the organization 700,000 US dollars per annum because of the reduced uh, incidence of central line uh, based infections. Now, if you go to an organization and you show that kind of impact, people sit up and listen because the money is interesting, but actually the, the, the impact on patient outcome and reduced length of stay and morbidity and mortality is even more interesting, but actually from the management perspective, being able to translate that into language that to them makes sense. And I, so I guess what I always say to people, when you start your simulation journey, you will have objectives that you would like to achieve within your unit, but often to get traction within, um, if we're talking about the management corridor, it's in the first instance, understanding what are the burning issues for the organization? What are the things that they're struggling with? and understanding the part that simulation can play in addressing that. And then you start changing that. But, but that's only part of the story, because the other thing, unless uh, your units are significantly different to mine, I think 
in the busy clinical environment, understaffed rotors, understaffed nursing rotors, and, and all the other things, people are saying, you know, I'm so busy clinically, and now you're asking me to do this? And so I guess the answers with regards to that is, is A, finding a way where it, it's integrated into that person's working pattern. So we're not asking people to come in on their days off because I personally think that's not the right way to go. And so in our unit, for example, it's part of what you wrote. You wrote it for that one day of, of simulation-based education where you come in and that day you work. But every working county you have is in a simulation-based fashion. And all of our fellows and, our, and nursing staff get scheduled for one of those every three months. So I think that's part of the answer. And then the other part of the answer is as educationalists, we have a curriculum that we're trying to deliver. But we have to understand that when we're dealing with our staff on intensive care units, it's only a proportion of those individuals who have curriculum-based goals to achieve. And so traditionally, most of those people are our, uh, medical colleagues who are in their postgraduate training. But for the rest of the unit, they have personal sort of, you know, continued professional development goals. And so what we have to ensure is that the training that the person is having is part of their own personal educational sort of need, if you like, because otherwise they're just props for the postgraduate medical professionals to train. So they're just there, but actually the focus isn't on their learning. And so you can have the best educational intervention, but if the value isn't perceived by the learner, so it's not learner-focused in its outcomes, for them at least, the program will never gain traction because people don't see the value. And when we've talked before about you know, the link with governance, for example, one of the key factors in our unit that literally was the switch that unlocked it all was when people took part in these, so for example, for the first Tuesday of every month, we have a simulation in our unit which the staff have identified a particular patient care pathway that they want to sort of interrogate, if you like, or use simulation to evaluate because there's elements that doesn't work for them. And so now as a, as a professional, I take part in that. And my views on how to change that is incorporated in the change that happens. And so my working environment changes for the better of my patients and myself. Suddenly this becomes a tool that is personal to me that helps me improve my personal sort of work environment and the outcomes for my patient. And so that internal motivation is an important part of that. And if it's something that, if it doesn't touch those, uh, so linking the hearts and the mind piece, um, then I think it's much harder to actually get people to um, buy into these programs and, and make it a priority in their working life. And I guess that gives it some longevity as well, because people just want to continue. When you say you run it every Tuesday of every month, what's the sort of basic setup you have? In our organization, we started our journey in 2004. And I would say in 2004, about 95% of the simulation-based education in my trust as a whole was delivered in the simulation center. And then what, what we realized is in order to deliver interprofessional, multi-professional education, unless we took the simulation-based education to the bedside, it was going to be very difficult for us to get all the professionals involved in the patient care present. The second thing was that actually by doing that, people were using the equipment that they used to care for patients in the environment where they care for patients, which allowed the systems evaluation piece. So every single simulation that gets delivered, whatever its educational objective, systems evaluation comes into the debrief. So every time we deliver a simulation in our hospital, 
we evaluate the systems within which we care for patients and we're constantly improving that. You know, in many organizations, patient safety is something that's done to you. But when approached in this way, it becomes something that you own and you're part of the army that's changing it constantly. And so the engagement within patient safety, addressing system issues is, in my experience, and certainly the organizations I worked in, in our organization at the highest levels, and it's something that people see as a personal responsibility because they know change will happen. As a simulation program, we've worked hard to link with our patient safety department to do that. And one of the ways we've done that is by actually um, most organizations will have, or all organizations in the UK will have a system in which we report risks that we identify. And so in, in our simulation programs, the elements that are identified related to the system that has been found risk or that people have identified is reported on the same distatatic system as our clinical incidents. And so what that means is that the organization deals with the same stringent quality assurance with the elements identified in simulation-based education as they do if it were a real patient to have. And so we have two patients, one's called pediatric simulation and the other one's called adult simulation. Those two patients are two of the most unfortunate patients in the world because lots of things happen to them because we link it to a patient and that links it to the program. But the onus for the addressing of that systems piece, because it's done by the local team that the simulation was done with, stays with the clinical team to address it and the patient safety department. So it links the whole thing together. And so you asked me about point-of-care simulation versus in-situ simulation. And if you look at the simulation dictionary that IMSH or, or the Society for Simulation and Healthcare has published online, it uses in-situ simulation as a broad brush to identify anything that's delivered in a hospital versus a simulation center. And I think that's an oversimplification of it because there is a huge difference between having a generic space within a hospital, so a cubicle within an ICU, but if you're the rheumatologist, you come there for your simulation, but it's not where you care for your patients. That's not point-of-care simulation. And so in my organization, at least, we use the term point-of-care simulation because whatever team you are, where you care for your patients, that's where the simulation is delivered. It has its challenges because this time of year, for example, having an ICU bed that happens to be free so you can put a simulated patient in and run a simulation, that's incredibly high-cost real estate. And so the challenge, I guess, with it is that in the wintertime, these events often at least delivered in a point-of-care setting is a little bit vulnerable to being cancelled or restructured to be delivered in the simulation centre purely because of the logistics of having the bed free. But I think the advantages of delivering it in that fashion is significantly higher than having a simulation programme that's based on the simulation centre. Uh, so I often get contacted by people saying, we're about to build a simulation center. Can you help us design our center or tell us? I said, very simple, tear up the plans. We don't need more simulation centers. We need teams within hospital environments so that every single hospital in the UK has a simulation capacity that allows them to deliver education at point of care that allows them to proactively you know, evaluate their systems. I'm not saying there are things that need to be delivered in simulation centers, but every hospital does not need a simulation center.